You know, the early church had a practice that when they greeted each other, um, one person coming one direction, the other going the other direction, and the Christian would say to the other Christian, he is risen. And the other person would say, he is risen indeed. That's a common uh, Easter greeting as well. He is risen. risen Absolutely. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 53, an unusual Easter uh, message. But it's an excellent Good Friday message. So we just keep doing Good Friday over and over. Um, if you need a Bible, we have some Bibles. Our ushers would be glad to hand out uh, a Bible uh, to follow along. It'll be important to follow along because this passage will not be on the PowerPoint this morning. We're going to be in Isaiah 53. It's going to be on page 514 in the Bridge Bible. Ushers have, just slip up your hand. We'd be glad to bring one to you if you need a Bible. It's on both sides. Yep. Just keep your hand up, we'll get you the Bible. Isaiah chapter 53, actually we're going to start in 52. In many ways, the life of Jesus Christ was not impressive by the world's standards. Author Eugene Peterson described it in this way. He said, the birth of Jesus itself was the humblest of the humblest peasant parentage. In an unimportant town, in the roughest of buildings... He made a career of rejecting marks of status or privilege. He loved lepers, washed the feet of disciples, befriended little children, encouraged women to join his entourage, and finally submitted to crucifixion by a foreign power. By the world's standards, Jesus was weak. By God's standards, Jesus was perfectly obedient. By the world's standards, Jesus' death was needless and unfortunate. But by God's standards, it was purposeful, sacrificial, and redemptive. Today, we're going to look at part six of Road to Redemption, our series. We've been in John's Gospels, just by way of reminder. So if that you're here for the first time, um, we've covered John 17, John 18, and John chapter 19 on the Road to Redemption. And that marked the last hours of Jesus' life. Last week, we looked at Psalm 22, which is sometimes called the crucifixion psalm, and it's a view from the cross. Probably something that Jesus uh, meditated on, and he quoted part of it while he was on the cross. Today, our focus is another Old Testament passage, Isaiah 53. It's Isaiah is sometimes called the prophet of the gospel. He makes so many uh, quotations that are quoted in the gospels, So many things that are allusions to the gospel of grace. Isaiah wrote in the 8th century B.C., over 700 years before the birth of Christ. uh, He wrote about Jesus more than any other Old Testament writer. In speaking of Isaiah 53, um, a well-known theologian of the uh, 19th century wrote this. Do we have that quote here? We have now come to the portion which may be regarded in many respects as the most important of all scriptures of the Old Testament and better adapted than any other to lead us to the right understanding of the whole. He's saying, if you understand this passage, Isaiah 53, if you understand the person of Isaiah 53, you will understand you'll have uh, understanding and insight into the entire 
Bible. This is an important passage, and that's why I want us to look at it this morning. So uh, it's either page 514 or 735. First in uh, chapter 52, because verses 13 through 15 in chapter 52 introduce chapter 53. They really go together. When I speak of Isaiah 53, I usually include this last portion of uh, 52. And if you follow along on your outlines, uh, God's servant identified, verses 13 through 15. We come to th- verse 13, and it's really a summary. See, my servant will act wisely. This is Isaiah the prophet, and God is speaking. This, just, this is God's person speaking through the uh, prophet. See, my servant, God's servant, will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. This is a summary of Jesus' life. He will act wisely. He will be a man of great wisdom. That's kind of an understatement here. Uh, If you follow the life of Jesus, um, he is God's servant. He will act with great wisdom. He will be raised up and lifted up, lifted up on a cross. And he will be raised up in a resurrection. And he will be exalted by ascending into heaven and sitting at the right hand of God. And so Isaiah starts with a summary of the life of Jesus. The whole life, his entire life. In John chapter 3, verses 12 through 15, Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, a religious leader. And he says, I've spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things, spiritual things, abstract things? How are you going to believe? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. And that would be Jesus. No one has gone into heaven. The only one that's been there is Jesus. Next slide. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Jesus refers to Numbers chapter 21, where Moses had to, had to use God because God instructed him to take a snake and make a bronze snake and put it on a pole because uh, venomous snakes had attacked the camp of Israel because of their disobedience. They complained, and God sent poisonous snakes. So uh, don't complain. No poisonous snakes. And uh, so Moses took this poisonous, uh, this uh, bronze snake and held it up. And if people would look on that in faith, uh, they were healed from their poisonous snake bites. Just, and so there's a parallel here, analogy, with Jesus being lifted up on the cross because people will have to look to him in faith to, uh, to how should I say that? It's really to uh, take God's punishment, that Jesus would take God's punishment for them. Um, let's let this story uh, unveil. Uh, he would be, he, so, He will be raised up, he will be lifted up, and he will be highly exalted. We've looked at this passage many times, Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. We won't look at it this morning, but it just says that uh, Jesus is going to have this exalted position, and every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every knee will bow because he will be highly exalted uh, in the future. Verse 14 describes his appearance. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. As Isaiah speaks 
of the appearance of Jesus being scourged and beaten in John chapter 19. His appearance was sickening. He did not appear to be a great king. He was hardly recognizable. His flesh was torn badly. John 19. If you remember this uh, from a couple weeks ago, then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. Flogged meant he was scourged. It would be like a whip of a cat of nine tails, leather thongs coming out with with uh, sharp metal and pieces of bones in the ends. The, the, the total design was to tear the flesh open. And if you remember, when someone was scourged, and there are accounts uh, in the first century of people being scourged and their skeletons being exposed, and uh, sometimes a victim did not live through the scourging. They never made it to the cross because the scourging was so terrible. So the Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged or scourged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They were making fun. They clothed him with the purple robe, and they went up again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they slapped him in the face. This was Jesus before the cross. People were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. Isaiah 15, verse 14. The impact of Jesus' life is seen in verse 15. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. The Apostle Paul quotes uh, the last half of that verse in Romans 15, 21. When you think of Isaiah writing in the 8th century before Christ, Isaiah is looking to the future and seeing the future impact of this servant's Life. He will sprinkle many nations. He uses the imagery of an Old Testament priest in the book of Leviticus. When things were cleansed at the temple, uh, a lamb was sacrificed and blood was sprinkled on those objects. So if you were going to have a bucket and you were going to have a holy bucket to be used at the temple, it had to be sprinkled with blood first. The bucket might be used to carry out ashes or animal parts or whatever, but it had to be dedicated to God and made holy. So blood was sprinkled on it. The servant will sprinkle nations, peoples. And uh, Isaiah sees that in the future, hundreds of years earlier, prophetically seeing that. He will sprinkle many nations. His blood will cleanse people from uh, nations of all over the world. In chapter 53, verses 1 through 3, we see God's servant despised. And we start with a question. Look at verse 1. Who has believed our message, Isaiah writes? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now the subject in, in uh, chapter 52, verses 12 through uh, 13 through 15, God was speaking with verse 12. Now the speaker turns to the nation Israel, the people of Israel. Who has believed our message? Not very many. Who has believed the message of Jesus? It's it's the Israelites looking back at the servant who has already died. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Well, not many people believed, but the arm of the Lord was revealed to the Jewish people, the nation of Israel in Jerusalem. And with God's mighty power, the arm refers to power, 
uh, and strength and the, and the miracle of the resurrection, the body of Jesus raised from the dead is that ultimate miracle performed uh, in Israel. And the armor of the Lord had been revealed. Jesus had been revealed and it was clear uh, that he had won the victory. John chapter 1 verse 11 says this, He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. He came to his own people. If you remember, God made a promise to Abraham 2,100 years earlier. He said, Abraham, I'm going to bless the world through you, through one of your family members. And then he passed that promise down through generations. Messiah, the great king. David was told there would be a king that would reign on his throne forever, a descendant of David. And this king would ultimately be Jesus. Remember, that's why they crucified him, because he claimed to be the king of the Jews. And he was. But they thought he was blaspheming, proclaiming to be the Messiah. He came to his own. He came to his own nation, and they did not receive him. Yes, some did. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 came to faith in Christ, and they were pretty much Jewish people. The church was pretty much Jewish when it got started. But when you think of the thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions of Jewish people, most of them didn't embrace Jesus as their Savior. And it's still a pretty big obstacle in their lives today. In verses 2 and 3, we have a miscalculation. Israel made a terrible miscalculation about Jesus. Verse 2, he grew up before him like a tender shoot. Who? Jesus grew up before the Father like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. Jesus the Messiah, a tender shoot. Humanly speaking, he didn't look like a powerful man. He didn't come with all the trappings of strength. He, he, He had a fragile human life, not that he was weak. But he didn't come across as powerful. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Um, Jesus was not attractive by the world standards. He was humble. He was poor. He, was, he dressed simply. He had a simple lifestyle. He was raised in a carpenter's family. Very likely had the trade of a carpenter. Nothing special about his family. No wealth, no hero status. Uh, just a humble um, beginning. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. He was not uh, attractive. In fact, he was repulsive after he'd been scourged. And it's like, uh, it's like the Jewish people are reflecting back on that day in that Good Friday when uh, Jesus uh, had been arrested and he had been tried and he'd been scourged and he'd been nailed to a cross. And now they're looking back. He was despised, rejected by man. Uh, he was familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. After Jesus was beaten and scourged and crucified, he was viewed as a total fari- failure. He was embarrassing. Uh, he, people couldn't stand to look at his suffering. Not because of pity, but because he was so grotesque. And it's amazing that the gospel writers do not give us details. The kind of details we have about Jesus was they scourged him or they crucified him. Um, 
Jesus was viewed as worthless, despised, and we held him in low esteem. It was a a terrible miscalculation on the part of Israel, God's people. Verse 4 through 6, we see God's servant wounded. Look at verse 4. He's cursed. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering. Matthew sees the fulfillment of this in Matthew chapter 8, verse 17. While Jesus was suffering on the cross, the Jewish people standing by and hearing of this story viewed this as God's curse. Jesus was getting what he deserved. He was cursed by God. Um, Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. And they were right. Jesus was crucified as a blasphemer. Jesus said he was God. Now, according to the Old Testament, he should be stoned to death for being a blasphemer if he's a liar. The difference is he wasn't a liar. And so um, because he made a claim to be God, he made a claim to be Uh, As the son of God, he claimed to be the Messiah, the promised one. He was crucified. In the eyes of the nation, Israel, Jesus was cursed by God because anybody who hangs on a tree, according to the book of Deuteronomy, is cursed. Somebody is put on a, a, when a body is placed outside for public viewing, it's a sign of God's curse. This is judgment that comes from God. So that Jesus is hanging uh, on the cross. And remember, um, he was naked. People were crucified with no clothing. It's extremely humiliating. And um, the nation Israel saw this as punishment from God. He's getting what he deserved. Galatians chapter 3 verse 13 says this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Being on the cross um, made him a curse. And because he bore the sins of the world, he became a curse. Um, For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole or on a tree or on a wooden stake. And the cross was on a wooden stake. Verse 5, uh, let me just read 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to become sin, because God laid our sin, the sin of the world, on him. He took our penalty. We're going to see that unfold because this is a very common theme theme in Isaiah 53. Verse uh, 5, he is pierced. Isaiah 53, verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. Isaiah writes 700 years before the birth of Christ. Nobody was crucifying anybody 700 years before the birth of Christ. That was not a way of execution. It wouldn't. Rome is not in power during Isaiah's day. Rome will come into power three to four hundred years later. And Rome will begin to practice execution of criminals by crucifixion. 
But it doesn't exist when Isaiah writes that. And he says he was pierced for our transgressions. This is not normal that a human being bear the transgressions of anybody. In the Old Testament worship system, they had animals to take care of that, not people. And yet Isaiah is speaking of this servant of God who is going to be pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. His life was taken for our sin. But it was not for his iniquities, not for his sin. It was for ours, the writer of Isaiah says. And by uh, the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And the Apostle Paul will reveal that we can have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ when we place our faith in Christ and have our sins forgiven. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, our punishment. And by his wounds, we are healed. Now, sometimes there is a misunderstanding about this verse from Isaiah 53 about by his wounds, we are healed. And, and so one of the big theological questions is, is there healing in the atonement? And the answer is, Jesus didn't die for our diseases. Jesus died for our sin. And atonement is about sin, not about healing uh, diseases. Now, let me come back. God can heal anything, anytime. God answers prayer. God will heal. God can heal miraculously. But the intention of this passage is not to teach healing in the atonement, nor is that the intention of Peter in the New Testament. The healing is a spiritual healing. My soul can be healed and forgiven. I get a new birth. That's what the atonement is all about. And we're going to talk about more about the atonement in just a minute. Um, verse 6, we're going to talk about the atonement. Um, in verse 6, uh, the writer of Isaiah says, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. And so now the uh, writer talks about people being like sheep. We have a characteristic that's like sheep. Sheep tend to stray. And that's a problem we have too. We tend to go off on our own. And what he's going to say is, we're sinners. We don't please God. We don't, we're not doing what God wants. And we, we each go our own way. I read an article on BBC Online. Uh, this happened, this was printed January 30th, 2006. And, he's, and the, here's what the article says. Why do sheep have shepherds? And, you know, sometimes it's because they're dumb. And because... It is the nature of sheep to stray and get in harm's way. Whether that be from hungry wolves or steep canyons, for centuries, shepherds have used various methods from a staff to a dog to keep sheep from straying from the safety of their care. In recent times, shepherds have turned to other more sophisticated methods. One method is a metal hoof-proof grid that is built into the ground around the sheep's territory. The animals cannot walk over the grid, which is eight feet wide. This works well in keeping sheep in the protection of, of a pen. That's a great idea. Eight-foot barrier around your sheep so they can't leave. Uh, one of the sheep figured out how to transgress the boundaries. It laid down and rolled over the grid. The other sheep in the herd followed the example of the stray leader. 
And soon the sheep had spread all over the countryside and found their way to neighborhood gardens where they ate food and flowers of local residents. And not only that, they got out again. And, and the shepherds came and got them. And not only that, they got out again. And they got out again. And this is, this is 2006 um, in uh, England. And the whole point of Isaiah 53.6 is we're like that. We find a way um, to disregard God's instructions. We, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God the Father laid our sin on Jesus. And I just read in 2 Corinthians 5, he became sin for us. So God would judge the world's sin on Jesus. It's a pretty unique event in all of history. Um, And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We call this sometimes in theology the substitutionary atonement. Jesus substituted for us. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. And um, the Apostle Paul is speaking of eternal death, spiritual death, which leads to a second death, which Jesus called hell. The wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. That's what all people deserve. Jesus took the death for us. He stood in. He was our substitute. Romans 3.25 verse and 26 says this, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. It's exactly what Isaiah 53 is talking about. Through the shedding of his blood to be, to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Next slide. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. We often don't understand sometimes God is a holy God and he requires justice. Somebody has to pay the price for justice. Jesus paid that price. God poured out his wrath for the entire world on Jesus. That's going to be the whole message of the gospel, which is really good news. Um, Verses 7 through 9, God's servant executed. Isaiah has amazing insight in this whole thing about Jesus, about God's servant who would suffer. First, we have silence in verse 7. God's servant executed silence. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was like a lamb to the slaughter. So now the imagery, a metaphor is going to be used of God's servant, the Messiah, as a lamb. He's now the lamb. He was like a lamb. um, He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And his sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. This was the main feature of Jesus after he was arrested. This is how he responded when he was questioned. Matthew 26, verses 62 and 63. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, and the high priest was very angry with Jesus, Are you going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under the oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. 
And then Matthew 27, verses 13 and 14. The, then Pilate asked him. So there was a religious trial. Now this is the government trial. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even a single charge, to the great amazement of the government. Jesus was silent, as if he was about to be executed, just like a lamb can be silent before execution. That's the way Jesus approached his death. Uh, Three years earlier, it was John the Baptist. When Jesus went into his public ministry at at about 30 years of age, when Jesus was baptized by John, John the Baptist, John said, when he saw Jesus coming to him, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. John got this uh, insight right on the spot. I don't think John thought about this thought before he saw Jesus coming, and he got these words, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. It was Isaiah 53 coming. And this wasn't like common knowledge where everybody was waiting for somebody to come and die. They, they would only see it afterwards. In verse uh, 8, we have death, the death of the servant. By, depression, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? Most people just watched. Even the disciples were quiet. If I'd have been a disciple and I'd have been at the cross, I'd have been scared to death to speak up. For he was cut off from the land of the living. That's it. That's public execution. To be cut off means to have your life taken, to be killed, to be cut off. That's that's a word that Daniel used in Daniel chapter 9 to speak of the Messiah's death. He will be cut off. That's an Old Testament concept of execution. He will be cut off from the land of the living. And then Isaiah says it again. For the transgressions of my people, he was punished. He wasn't punished for his own transgressions. He was punished for the transgressions of of, uh, God's people, Israel, and ultimately the whole world, as we understand clearly in the New Testament. This is the substitutionary atonement. Jesus died for you and for me. Romans 5.8 includes us. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us in our place. It was about love. He, a sacrificial love. He gave himself for us, for you and for me. This includes the non-Jewish people. Isaiah was talking about Jewish people. This includes the peoples of the world, Gentiles. Paul, the Romans, were Gentiles. In verse 9, we see that he's buried. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. And we talked about this uh, two weeks ago. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. After Jesus was crucified, the common thing to do with a criminal after crucifixion was to pull the body off the cross, have a quick burial, throw all the bodies together. There were three of them. They should have all been thrown uh, without any preparation into a hole and covered up. That's it. That's what was coming. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. It was already assigned. That's what they would have done. And with the rich man in his death. Nobody saw this coming. Joseph of Arimathea, a secret disciple, went to Pilate. A very courageous thing to do. 
Remember, Joseph was um, from the ruling council. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, the highest organization, the highest group in the nation Israel. As a secret disciple, he went to Pilate. He would have lost all credibility in the nation. And he asked for Jesus' body, humbly to take the body, to wash it, and then to wrap it. And then he put Jesus in his own tomb where nobody had, had been laid before. Now, how significant is that? Well, most tombs got used over and over and over again. They just brought in a body, waited for it to decay, and then they take the bones, put them in a small container, and you had more room for the next body. This was a brand new tomb and, uh, that Joseph had made for himself. And then he says, uh, in the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. He was innocent. And that's what Pilate kept saying. That's what Herod's saying. And um, that's the whole testimony of the New Testament. There was nothing, no deceit. There was no violence. He was innocent. God's servant is vindicated in the last part of, uh, in verses 10 through 12. First, the sacri- uh, sacrifice, verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. And to cause him to suffer. Isn't it amazing how much this talks about God afflicting, God making Jesus a curse, God putting the sin penalty on Jesus, the servant. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And, and uh, though the Lord makes his life uh, an offering for sin, Jesus exchanged his life for your life. The exchanged life. Jesus' life for you. He became an offering for sin, for your sin. Um, This was clearly God's doing. It was God's plan. It was God's will. He would make the provision to solve the whole problem of the sin penalty. And then we see something unusual. Verse 10, he will see his offspring offspring and prolong his days this will not be the end of jesus he will see his offspring well how many children did jesus have well jesus had no physical descendants many spiritual descendants children of god who will come to faith in jesus he will see his offspring and prolong his days eternally and the will of the lord will prosper in his hand and that would be like an understatement Indeed, the will of the Lord will prosper in Jesus' hand, and he will come uh, back a second time and establish his kingdom. Verse 11, something great happens. Resurrected. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. The crucifixion will not be the end for God's servant. He will see the light of life, and this is the resurrection. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. The doctrine of justification explained by the Apostle Paul. He will justify many. And he will bear their iniquities. There it is again. The substitutionary atonement. Jesus' death was about bearing a sin penalty. Jesus' death was an offering for sin. The good news, Luke 24, verses 1 through 8. This is about today. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus because the tomb was empty. Next slide. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. 
They were angels. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground because they were scared to death. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? Next slide. He is not here. He has risen. Death was not the victory. Jesus was the victor. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? He's reminding them, I've, you know, I said it was going to rise. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified on the third day, be raised again. Then they remembered his words. In verse, in verse 12, justification. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. This is a servant who was cut off from the land of the living. He has a future. God, this is God speaking again. He spoke in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, the very first verse, and now he speaks at the very last verse. Therefore, I, God, the Father, will give him a portion among the great. He's going to ascend into heaven and sit at the right hand of God, the most uh, significant and powerful position in all of the universe, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Um, like a victorious king. This is the imagery here. Like a victorious king. Um, he will take his inheritance and he will share this with his followers in the future. Because, the writer says, he poured out his life unto death. It was a voluntary sacrifice in obedience to the Father. And he was numbered with the transgressors, crucified with the criminals. Uh, verse 13 or verse 12, for he bore the sin of many. There it is again, the substitutionary atonement. And he made intercession for the transgressors. Jesus became the sacrificial lamb of God on Passover. When Israel looked back to uh, the time in Exodus where God passed over the nation because lambs had been sacrificed and blood had been sp uh, spread on their doorposts, so where God saw the blood, he passed over. So that when people believe in Jesus, God passes over all of those who have trusted in Jesus because of the blood of Christ that's paid the penalty for their sins. And then he says he bore the sins of many and he made intercessions for the transgressors. Transgressors. He prayed and asked for forgiveness for those who crucified him. Romans 5, 1 and 2 speaks of justification this way. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into his grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. When you place your faith in Christ, the scripture says you are justified through faith. The idea of justification is um, God now declares you to be righteous. Jesus paid for our sin penalty. We are the unrighteous. And when we come to him by faith, we receive his righteousness. Justification is when he declares us righteous. Not a righteousness of our own, but a righteousness that comes from him. It's about grace. And I hope we have a little video clip here about grace. Peter spent his life learning about God's grace. You know, one of the cool things is God knows your name, every detail about you. And he died to forgive the unforgivable. You know, there's not a thing that anybody in this room could do that he cannot forgive. It's called grace. 
Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says this, It is for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, a gift, a gift. It's not earned. It's a gift. I don't deserve it. It's a gift, not by works. It's not by doing a bunch of good things. If, if it were that way, then we would boast. It's a gift. It's by grace. It's by grace that any of us can be saved. Salvation is by grace, and the Christian life is by grace. We don't deserve it. Um, you know, Jesus died. This is what we talked about all morning. Jesus died to pay for our sin penalty. Jesus died to pay for your sin penalty. The good news is, we call this the gospel, your sin penalty has already been paid for. And if you know that and have received it, that's a reason to worship and say, thank you, God. I don't deserve it. I thank you. If you've never placed your faith in Christ, you can still do that because the offer is valid. The offer is real and it's every day and it's today. And uh, let me just remind you, he offers forgiveness of sin. He offers eternal life. He offers to give us a clean slate, a new start. We call that a spiritual birth. And very simple, very simply, it's, it's understanding these things. Scripture says we need to admit that we're a sinner. I'm a sinner. Uh, we need to understand there are consequences for sin. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. That's a reference to eternal death, spiritual death. And the good news is, is that uh, Jesus died for us and paid for our penalty. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We saw that passage earlier. God has one requirement, and it's that whole issue of faith. Acts 16.31 says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. It's about trusting Jesus Easter is about the resurrection. Jesus is not dead. He is alive right now. He is in heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God. He is a living Savior, and we can approach him today. And he loves to have people come and place their faith in him, acknowledging their sin and looking to him for forgiveness. And very simply, uh, you could do that this morning. Anybody here could do that uh, I'm going to give us, as we close our service, as we come to the end of my time, we're, we're, uh, I'm going to give you an opportunity to come to him by faith. And, and that is simple as expressing a prayer. I'm going to go through a prayer two times. One, I just want you to listen. Does this prayer make sense? And if it does, I'm going to go through it a second time. And you can just pray that prayer silently from your heart. Okay, here's the prayer. Just listen. Dear God, I admit that I'm a sinner. Thank you that Jesus died for me. I trust him right now to pay the penalty for my sin. I invite Jesus to come into my life. I want to ask him to help me to be the person he wants me to be. I need his help. Okay, that's the prayer. Now, if that prayer made sense to you, I want to go through it a second time. And uh, I'm going to ask us all to bow our heads. And if if that prayer made, made sense, I just want to invite you to pray with me silently and make that prayer yours. Make it personal. It's between you and God. Dear God, I admit that I'm a sinner, and I thank you that Jesus died for me. And so I trust him right now to pay the penalty for my sin. And I want to ask Jesus uh, to come into my life. I need his help. I need his strength. 
I want him in my life every day. Now, if you just prayed with me that prayer, would you just slip up your hand so I can see your hand? If you prayed with me, you meant business with God. Just slip up your hand. Thank you. Anybody else? Thank you. Father in heaven, I just thank you for those uh, this morning right now who have uh, raised their hands and who've indicated that they prayed that prayer um, along with me, that they have uh, admitted that they've sinned and they um, acknowledge that Jesus died for them. And they've trusted Jesus this morning to pay the penalty for their sins. And God, it's my prayer that uh, you uh, will just make yourself known to them, that they might sense your presence right now, that they might sense the forgiveness of their sin right now, that they might have an assurance of a new life, an eternal life with you right now. And God, for all of us, we're just so grateful to remember Easter and to remember what Jesus did for us. We're so thankful for the resurrection that reminds us of victory over death, to remind us of your power, the power that we need every day to live for you. May we rely on that strength. May we be reminded that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. In Jesus' name, amen.